Good afternoon. Can you hear me? My name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of a loving God, I'm sober and alive, and I'm grateful to be in that shape. And uh, it's an honor to be here with you. I want to thank Joe. I, Joe and I decided last night, uh, we never said it, but I, I know by mutual understanding that we would have definitely drank together. Uh, <laughs> We shared some of the same haunts back in the 60s. I was going to um, try to shorten this talk today and get rid of all my 60s stuff, but I think for Joe's sake, I'll just I'll tell all that. <laughs> Gary says i got 75 minutes anyway, so I'm sure that you... You know, just kidding. Um, it's uh, we're, we're really honored to, to have been asked to come uh, to this conference. It's in a beautiful place. Um, we've met just absolutely beautiful people. Um, I want to thank everyone who uh, made this possible. We've done this quite a few times, and we know the hard work that goes into it. And um, Wayne and, and Joanne have just been unbelievable. I, we've never had uh, hosts as uh, accommodating as, as they have been. I mean, they've just dragged us over battlefields and through the rain under oak trees in the middle of the night, and they just, you know goes on and on, but uh, we really do appreciate it, and they, they've been fantastic. Um, I, I sometimes forget to do this, but uh, I want to thank uh, Dick and Gary and Dicobe uh, for taping this. Um, tapers do an uh, incredible job for both of our fellowships, and, uh, you know, some people get upset that they have to charge money to pay, pay for their tapes and such. I've never known a taper yet that uh, just bought a condo in Florida or was driving a new Cadillac or anything, and it, it's really a labor of love that they do, and uh, I think if we can support them, we should do it in every way we can. Um, so I really appreciate that as well. Um, let's see. I wanted to thank uh, the committee too for the for the fruit basket. We had a just a gorgeous fruit basket in our room, and um, you know I opened it up and we, there's a little mini refrigerator in our in our room. It's kind of a dorm room, and uh, so I was storing some of the apples and pears and such. Uh, I was trying to refrigerate them, and I looked in the back of the fridge and there was a green bottle, kind of frosty green bottle, and I, I pulled it out, and it was a bottle of St. Pauli Girl beer, just ice, frosty cold, and I thought, well, th this has to be some test that the al are running on me, you know? I, I would have drank it, but I didn't want to give them the satisfaction. So anyway, thanks for that, too. Glad, glad I passed the test. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, and then they, uh, you know, when they sent us a little brochure about kind of the do's and don'ts of this conference, and they said, please dress appropriately, you know, if you're going to be a speaker. And I assumed that they wanted me to wear a, a coat and tie, which I always do um, at an AA function. And, you know, a lot of people think that it's uh, out of respect for AA, and partially it is. But but the other part of it is is that if I can get this tie and cinch it up tight enough around my neck, then it cuts off some of the blood to the head, and I don't tend to intellectualize quite as much, you know, a little, a little bit more connected to the heart. So it's kind of a twofold deal with that. But uh, we're really glad to be here. Um, we we travel quite a bit for AA and Al-Anon, and uh, this is just one of the best I think we've ever been to. Um, I uh, have a special affection for Al-Anon uh, beyond the fact that it saved my marriage and has, you know, contributed to my uh, recovery uh, so much. Um, because I grew up fighting alcoholism long before I ever drank, and I'm not an Al-Anon member, I should I should qualify that right away, and I'll, I'll tell you in a little bit why I'm not. But uh, I'm a hearty supporter of Al-Anon, and I have uh, some really great friends in Al-Anon. And, uh, in fact, uh, two of my heroes, um, all-time heroes of my life, uh, were Al-Anon members. The late, great Rusty Kelly, if you ever had a chance to meet her or hear her speak, and Arbutus O'Neill uh, have just touched my life and, and changed it for the better, you know. But um, I, I grew up uh, in a good Christian home um, with two good Christian alcoholics uh, for parents. 
And they, they say that's a breeding ground for alcoholism. I don't know, but it was for me. And, uh, you know, we don't like to pronounce anyone alcoholic, but we do it. And um, they were, I, in my, by my understanding of the description of alcoholism that's outlined in the big book of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, both my parents were alcoholic. My dad died uh, at 48, and uh, was directly related to to this illness. Um, I think I would have died much sooner had I not found you guys. But uh, at any rate, I was fighting booze, you know, as I said before, I ever put it in my system, and I was trying to make sense of. Um, a, a drunken mother who was essentially insane when she was drunk and then makes sense out of the fact that uh, the next morning she was an entirely different person you know uh, the night before I'd be arguing with her and trying to make sense out of out of what she was saying and uh, the criticism and uh, the uh, just the nastiness and mean-spiritedness and the next morning she'd be cooking breakfast and tell me how what a wonderful kid I was and uh, it, was, it was tough to reconcile that, and uh, that's how I got started in life. Um, I was, you know, we've been out on the battlefield. We've been doing this battlefield thing, it seems like, for a week, but uh, it's terrific. It's really, the history is, is just so thick here, and uh, I had relatives fighting on both sides of that conflict, and uh, I was born in the South. My, my parents were both Southerners, and... Uh, then at a, at a young age, I was taken to the north. I was, I was born in Kentucky and raised in New York. And that set up a conflict in me that I think um, it would, would not necessarily have been set up in another, in another person, but I was ripe for it, you know, budding alcoholic that I was. And uh, it set up just a, a general unhappiness in me. You know, uh, when I was seven years old, I was down in southwestern Kentucky with my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was just a fabulous lady who was a real Christian, not an alcoholic, but a Christian in the sense that she believed in that Christ wanted her to help other people, and she just spent all her time doing that. And she was a great living example of, of what that's like. And she said to me when I was seven, I'd been bitching at her and complaining about something, and she said, Tommy, do you know what's wrong with you? And I, I wanted to know, so I, I said, no, I don't. And she said, you never think about anybody but yourself, you know, and that's why you're so miserable. And she just, she had nailed me. You know, that's that's how I'm wired. That's what my alcoholism boils down to. And uh, that's what I'll probably be fighting till the day I die, you know. And uh, so because it's all about me and I'm all I ever think of, um, it makes for an unhappy life, you know. <laughs> and anything I can attach to to be unhappy about, I will. I, I was We were at two of the meetings this morning, and people were talking about doing service in the prisons, and uh, I love doing that. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm sure you've heard this before, but those guys are doing my time for me. I didn't get caught for the things that they're serving time for. I did a lot worse things than what they're serving time for. So I owe that debt, and I think I need to pay it. And uh, I do a step workshop, a uh, big book step workshop at our penitentiary in Santa Fe. About a quarter of the time when we go out there, um, and it's in the middle of the afternoon on a work day, the, the, the place is locked down because the inmates have been beating on each other, stabbing each other, things they do. And to punish them, they don't let them go to AA. You know, so, a little crazy. But um, at any rate, so I'd gone down uh, one day last summer, last August, and I'd driven all the way out there and, oh, what an inconvenience it was, and gotten there, and then sure enough, you know, nobody to talk to, nobody to hear the message. And I'm driving back, and I'm just pissed off. I mean, I'm just angry the whole way back and uh, thinking, you know, my God, they should have called me. You know, here I'm a, we're trying to run a business, and I have to, you know, this inconvenience of stopping all this stuff in the middle of my, you know, important work day and blah, 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 blah. And I'm, I'm going, I'm getting madder and madder. And I look up in the sky, and the New Mexico sky in August is just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. The cloud formations are just miraculous. And I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, wow, that's really that's really pretty. <clears throat> and then my next thought was, you know, none of those guys in lockdown are looking at this sky right now. And where you're headed is back to your family, you know, back to your wife. Maybe your grandkids will be there. You know, maybe tonight you go out to dinner, go to a movie, and they're going to be in lockdown all night, you know. 
And uh, you ought to be grateful for the fact that you're able to leave that place, you know. And I thought, my God, how did I miss that, you know. And uh, and I know how I missed it is I'm just wired towards the negative. That's just where my head will go in any given time, you know. And uh, but but so I have to practice being grateful, and uh, and I have to ask God to uh, help me to be grateful. Um, I wasn't a drinker. I, I uh, you know I grew up in this home, and I didn't uh, I didn't care for the drinking. Uh, to say I didn't care for it was just a total understatement. I hated my parents because of their drinking. That's exactly what what it boiled down to. Um, my brother and I never got along. I had a younger brother, four years younger, and, and uh, it wasn't until we bonded together in our mutual hatred of our parents and their drinking that we ever had any closeness whatsoever. And that's kind of a hard way to do it. You know, I don't know that that's the best way to uh, to establish a relationship, but that's what happened to us. And uh, so I, I swore I would never drink. And um, I know no one in here ever did that, uh, swore that they wouldn't, but um, uh, but I did. And I took an oath not to drink and um, just inside myself. And um, I grew up, you know, as I said, outside New York City. Uh, uh, this was the mid-60s. I mean, I grew up through the 50s and the 60s there. But uh, in the mid-60s, there was a lot of social unrest in this country, and uh, that was kind of one of the, the center points for it. And uh, we were protesting the war in Vietnam, and um, we were, you know, a lot of us were involved in the civil rights movement. Um, just a lot of stuff going on. It was kind of a hub of that kind of thing. And uh, my brother, I remember he was uh, picketing uh, for the grape strikers in California. And, you know, we were just involved in this stuff, so social activists and demonstrators and all this jazz. And uh, I remember my parents hated it. They were Republicans, and they, they just did not <laughs> care for that at all. Uh, no offense to any Republicans. I'm, I'm, an an, I'm an anarchist myself, so, you know. But um, at any rate, uh, you know, they were arguing about it, I guess, one time, and, and my father said to my mother, you know, we raised them to be Christians, and they took us seriously. You know, <laughs> and I always thought that was peculiar, but anyway. Um, so, uh, we, you know, we were doing all that jazz, and... Uh, I was a, um, I, I just never fit in anywhere. Uh, I don't know if any of you had that sense that your skin was on backwards, but that's that's how I always felt, just out of sync. Uh, I thought if these people knew the things I'm thinking, they, w- they would move away from me. You know, they would scoot three seats away because I just, they, they can't think the things that I'm thinking and be reacting to life the way I am. And I uh, just felt like I'd been dropped on the wrong planet. So, um I didn't do well in school. I didn't do well in anything in life, and uh, but was allowed into a uh, a little experimental college um, that was out on Long Island that was run by the Quakers, and that's where I came in contact with a lot of Philadelphians, actually, who uh, um, you know, dope taking Philadelphians who were out there. <laughs> but. Um, at any rate, uh, this this college was run by the Quakers, and it was a world-traveling college, and, and they set it up to create agents of social change who were going to save the world, and um, uh, they were addressing the problems of war, racism, and poverty worldwide, and we set off to do that. And in the late 60s, I was in some of the most exciting places, probably, if you were a you know an anarchist, that uh, you, you could possibly be. I was in London and Paris, and I, I spent seven months in East Africa and uh, was down in Mexico when the rioting was happening down there. You know, it was where the action was. And, um, you know, and, and it was it was a high time. It was a really interesting time, and we really felt like we were making a difference. And uh, little by little, I got disillusioned with those guys. Um, I've had that problem all my life, and... Uh, you know, they, they weren't radical enough, I didn't think, and I came back to America to uh, to try to uh, start the revolution by myself. When, uh, you know, we're big book guys. If you haven't gotten that yet, I'll just clue you in. And um, so we read the big book a lot. That's how we work the steps. <clears throat> and um, 
So I've read Bill's story innumerable times. And when I first read it, I thought, now Bill's a stockbroker. You know, he, this guy's a stockbroker, and he wanted to set the world on fire, and the financial financial guys were his heroes. Well, I wanted to burn Wall Street down. You know, financial guys were the enemy. But the grandiosity in both cases was exactly the same, and I finally saw myself in Bill's story, even though I was coming at it from a completely different angle. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but... Um, so at any rate, started running around uh, New York City in the late 60s uh, with different groups of anarchists and ended up with a, a, well, they were a street gang, really. They they um, called themselves a street gang with an analysis. Uh, their, yeah, their name was, uh, that they called themselves was Up Against the Wall Mother Effers. And... Um, <laughs> They um, they were anarchists, you know. They were they they were policing the police in the Lower East Side of New York City, and uh, tried, they called it their community, and they were trying to keep it together. And they had a motto: it was, uh, "We know we've got it if it makes us feel good." And um, and then they had a logo that they plastered all over the Lower East Side of New York, and it was the zigzag rolling paper man. If they, I mean, you might have seen him. He's the guy on the he's got a beard on the rolling paper. Only he had an M16 in his arms, and it said "Armed Love" above his head, and that was their logo. And um, so I, I messed around with them for a while, and it just one more time I became disillusioned, and it just you know nobody would do it my way, and I finally said, "Oh, the hell with them all!" You know, the world's in ruins, and there's nothing I can do about it, and uh, you know, so just to hell with them. And I ended up. Um, Running around with a gal from this school, and we were we were knocking around the country together, and uh, we ended up getting married and having a, had a child coming. And uh, all this time, I'm not I'm not drinking at all because you don't drink if you're going to be socially conscious because you've got important things to worry about. Now you can smoke weed and, and take psychedelics, and that expands your consciousness, but you don't drink. That's a, that's a real no-no, and. Uh, so, um, long story short, we end up uh, on a on a little island off of Cape Cod, and I'm 22 years old. I'm married to a woman that I'm pretty sure I shouldn't have married. Uh, she's pregnant. I'm about to become a father. I have no skills whatsoever. I am absolutely scared to death, and I have to get a job, and that's the that's the most fearsome part of the whole deal. Because I never worked. I mean, I, you know, and, and I always say if they'd had, if I looked in the paper and, and seen, you know, revolutionaries being interviewed this week, it would have been great. But but no one was looking for one on Nantucket that winter. And, and uh, so there I was and um, had to take a job and I became a construction worker. And... Um, you know, was kind of a man of the people anyway sort of guy, even though I'd been raised upper middle class and all this. And and uh, one night, the the guys that I worked with, who were these just badass guys, they were from Philly and Boston and New York and places like and they they knew the ropes. They were big, you know big tough construction worker guys, and I'm a skinny punk kid, you know, 22 year old kid and uh, low man on the totem pole, and they invite me up to the bar with them. And uh, the bar that they invite me to is called the Chicken Box. And um, a little bit about the, the Chicken Box, it was a Portuguese fishing bar uh, that hadn't served chicken in 30 years at that time. I took Juanita up there, what, five, six, seven years ago. I was making amends back on Nantucket, and they still aren't serving chicken, so they, but they still call the Chicken Box. And uh, plywood floors, uh, fights every night, bucket of blood kind of place, you know, and uh, just loved it, adored it, my home away from home. But anyway, they invite me up, and boy, the guys are asking me to come with them. This is a good deal. And, uh, you know, we're, we're sipping some beer, some actually Ballantine Ale. I know there's some Ballantine Ale drinkers in here. I have to say, I see some heads. Man, back, you know, in the West, you say Ballantine Ale. Everybody's under 30 anyway anymore in AA rooms, and they go, what? You know, and, but the three-ring sign of Ballantine, it was a big deal, green bottle, and uh, we were sipping some of that, and all of a sudden... Guy sets a shot glass in front of me, and um, and I blasted back because he bought me a drink, 
and it was Jack Daniels. And um, I remember thinking, you know, as it went down, kind of burned and everything, I thought, there's something right about this, you know. There's this just, I, I never remember liquor tasting. I didn't like drinking. I really didn't. Uh, had never enjoyed it as a kid experimenting, and there was just something right. It smelled right, and then I kind of got it. That was what all my southern relatives smelled like, you know, and <laughs> kind of like a racial memory thing coming back, like <laughs> cellular level. And then, um, then all of a sudden, another one appeared, and I took that drink, I shot that down, chased it with some ale, and it seemed like the world changed. The entire world turned upside down. I was suddenly big and bad and worldly wise, and you know, my shoulders, you've heard this story. And um, I, I just, I fit. I fit inside myself for the first time, and I felt like I was a peer instead of an outsider. I had arrived. Bill Wilson says, I had arrived, and it was at that moment that I arrived. And... Um, you know, I, I, anything that could do that for me was a nectar, and I was not going to let it go. And uh, I didn't slowly evolve into a problem drinker. I had problems almost instantly. Um, I was coming home from that bar. I, I just started drinking like crazy is what happened. You know, it just made me feel so right. And I um, was coming home from that bar one night, and a guy was tailgating me in a little sports car. And I thought, you know... I hate being tailgated. I don't know, probably some of you, it doesn't bother you. You're spiritually advanced enough that if they sit right on your bumper, not me, still hate it. Uh, but I don't react like I used to. And um, what I did was I threw on the brakes hoping he would plow into me. And he didn't. And I jumped out and uh, made a comment about uh, his mother that I should not have made. <laughs> And uh, tried to pull him through. It was a little uh, like a TR3 or something. I tried to pull him through his window, but he didn't need that. He came out. He was about six seven, and, and he beat me nearly to death that night. And um, he he just he ate me up just completely. I mean, you know, I was there right like this about hospitalizing me. And uh, it never occurred to me that, that liquor had had anything to do with that. It just never, it really never did. I thought, I'll never tell a sailor that about his mom again. That's absolutely not. But to stop drinking whiskey, you know, to the point where you just couldn't see straight or think straight never occurred to me. And um, anyway, we, we went on with this. This, this wife became um, concerned about my drinking. Uh, we had another child. Uh, it was just started to get grim. It just started to get awful, and and uh, we went on and on like this. Eventually, uh, she couldn't stand it anymore, and uh, I wish she had found Al-Anon, but she never did. Um, I mean, not well. I, I wish she'd find it today. <laughs> she could use it today, but uh, she never did find it. And uh, eventually, she just couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, I don't blame her. I mean, she had to get out of there. You can't live like that. You know, I know uh, most most of you all have experienced it. Um, we, I always say this, that in, in my family tree, in my history, we've had a lot of hard drinkers, probably a lot of alcoholics. They all worked hard. They were farmers. They came from Illinois, Indiana, South Carolina, Tennessee. They were hardworking people. Uh, decent people for the most part. You know, we'd never had a street bum, and then there was Tom, you know. And we finally had a street bum, a guy who lived without a home, you know, a guy who uh, would eat out of a dumpster, you know, this kind of a thing. And uh, this this gal left because you can't live when the lights are being turned off and there's no gas and there's no money for food and you got two little kids, can't do it. And so she found somebody who could provide what I couldn't, and she left. And, and today I say thank God that she did leave, um, you know, at that point. Anyway, downward spiral, uh, just a lot of self-pity and a lot more drinking. And uh, a guy came up to me at one point and he said, you know, you're having a lot of trouble with this drinking thing. I mean, you're, you're practically unemployable now and you're living on the street and on construction jobs. He said, uh, have you ever thought of trying to get off of that? And I said, yeah, I have, but, you know, I don't know what I would do. It's, you know. He said, well, there's there's this um, uh, kind of a maintenance program. Uh, he said, it's called the heroin maintenance program. You know, just to, and he said, if you'll if you'll try a little recreational heroin, you know, you'd probably be able to get off of that that sauce, get off that whiskey. So um, it sounded good to me. Um, 
And, you know, and I, and I started up, and people, people would say uh, years later, they said, didn't you think you'd become addicted and become a heroin addict? I said, not really. I, you know, I, I figured I had way too high an IQ to ever get addicted to heroin. <laughs> and I uh, found out that heroin does not care about your IQ at all. I've effectively lowered that IQ quite a bit. But anyway, uh, the, the, the main problem was it didn't work. I became addicted to heroin, but then I got thirsty again. Crazy. And, and uh, now I was a heroin addict who was drinking whiskey. It was just a nutty thing. And uh, that normally doesn't happen. And, and the, um, eventually the, the heroin people didn't trust me because I was knocking on their door in blackouts at 3 a.m. And the drinkers didn't trust me because I'm sticking needles in my arm. And it was a crazy mixed-up deal where no one would claim me, you know. And um, now that, that's all you'll hear about that stuff, that that heroin stuff, uh, because I don't bring that to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I don't, uh, not because I'm ashamed of it or anything like that, but we have singleness of purpose. I think it's very, very important. I champion it. Um, I know what I am. I'm a real alcoholic, and I'm a hope-to-die heroin addict. But um, one of the byproducts of my sobriety has been I don't take any drugs, and that's just been a gift from God. And uh, the, the neat thing is I can work with a drug addict, but we don't talk about that stuff at AA meetings, and I hope I hope everybody's clear about that. When I, when I get with someone and, and they want help, the first thing we do is we open the big book and we find out what's wrong with them. What are you really powerless over? And a lot of times they'll say, well, in the treatment center, they told me I'm powerless over everything. And I say, garbage. That's, that can't be right. Let's let's look at it. And we take all these things they think they're powerless over. We run them through the doctor's opinion in the first 43 pages of the big book, and we find out what's wrong with them. What are they truly powerless over? I'm powerless over alcohol because I don't have a choice whether I drink it or not. I don't choose that. Even today, I don't choose that. I would choose not to drink, and I would end up drinking. See, a choice is is two or more options, and I don't have those. I have one option, drink. I don't care what I think or what has happened to me or what the consequences are or who's trying to convince me that I should not drink. I'm going to drink anyway. And, and that's, that's powerlessness in that sense. When I put that drink into me, I lose control over the amount. Okay, that only happens to, we think, about 10, 12% of the population. But that, that happens to me, and it happens almost every time. That makes me alcoholic, okay? When I put the, the heroin through the big book, it, it, I was never going to walk away from the heroin. It wasn't going to happen. I was, I was hopelessly, I had a compulsion to do it, and, of course, anybody who does an opiate is going to get addicted to it. So those two things I was powerless over. I took all the other drugs and the garbage I'd put in my system, I put it through the book, None of it was bingo. I walked away from cocaine, didn't like the, the coming down, wasn't worth the going up anymore. And I got my truth. So what I do with someone when they come to me for help is I, I sit down with them and I give them my time, which is to me very valuable today. And we try to establish what's wrong with you. What, what is really wrong with you? What are you powerless over? And, uh, and then once we get that, if, it, if it's alcohol, and I don't care what else they're doing. I think alcoholics do everything. I mean, you know, people say, well, I'm an alcoholic who's got other problems. I've got sex issues. And it's like the big book says we all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. I don't know an alcoholic who doesn't. You know, well, I, I gamble a little bit. I think every alcoholic I know has had a problem with gambling at some point or another. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't separate them out into these categories. But, uh, but, you know, primarily, what's wrong with you? And, um, and, you know, if they're alcoholic, I say, great. You know, you're welcome at AA. You can be of service to someone else. You can get out of yourself and out of this self-centeredness that's killing you by going to AA and eventually, you know, taking the medicine that we offer and working with somebody else, and it'll save your life. But if you're a drug addict trying to do that with an alcoholic in AA, it won't work. It just won't work, you know. And I, I point them in the direction of NA because that's where they can be of use to someone else. And anyway, that's that's the end of that deal. Um, uh, that's that's just you know what what I believe and what I've been taught by uh, by some really great saints, I think, in this program. So um, nobody left yet. Normally, a few uh, get up and leave with that little sermon. Um, so where was I? Uh, let's see. Had I gotten sober yet? Probably not. Um, 
I um, I met Juanita, uh, my my pres- my current wife. Please stand. You do that to me. Now stand up. <laughs> You're speaking this evening. She does that to me all the time. And um, we got together. We both had children. Um, we threw those families together into a just a horrible, chaotic um, mix. You know, a blended family. It wasn't blended. It just was uh, chaos from the beginning. And, uh, you know, booze and drugs and all of this. And she was going to be my savior. And um, she, I, I looked like a pretty uh, promising, you know, science project for her, you know. And... Um, <laughs> But she she failed at that, and eventually had to say uncle. And uh, so, but we we rocked along for about nine years uh, in our in our illness. She'll probably tell you more about that tonight. And um, what we did was we we uh, we damaged our children just tremendously. We um, we scarred them with scars that will never heal. You know, they'll never completely heal. Um, there's tremendous healing that happens in these programs. I mean, we've we've witnessed miracles, and we've been a part of of miracles. We've lived in miracle land, you know, and we do today. But there are scars, and there are things that happen to our children that will never heal. And uh, for those things, I have regret. You know, um, I've done a lot with the ninth step, and there's a promise that says you won't regret the past or wish to change the future, wish to. Shut the door on it, yeah. And uh, I don't wish to shut the door on it. I never will, but uh, I do regret what happened to my children, and maybe that'll change someday. Um, at any rate, we we just had a tough time of it, and we finally it had uh, gotten to the point where we, if we'd had the smarts, we would have gone bankrupt because we just had nothing. But she still had a job with the state, and so we had some insurance, and. Um, and so we didn't go bankrupt, but uh, we shipped me off to a to a treatment center, and um, I went down to a treatment center in Albuquerque, and uh, it was either get out of the house or go to AA. And so I went, and uh, I kind of looked around, and it, it two things occurred to me. It's a very grim place, number one, and number two, these people are just basically pathetic, you know. <laughs> they, they really seem like losers to me, you know. And um, now I'm shooting heroin before I can get well enough to go in and judge them, but they're losers, right? So, uh, so anyway, I, I went back to her and I said, I, I got it. I got the AA deal. No problem. I won't drink. Uh, I understand how they do it, and it's, I'm fine now, you know. And uh, and I went for about 60, 70 days. And um, if you've ever had this happen, you know about the worm turning. You know, and the worm starts. The book calls it strange mental blank spot. It's this peculiar mental twist. What happens is I start to think about drinking, and I start to convince myself that it's going to be okay to drink. In, in my case, it was a Christmas party, and I fought that worm like crazy. I said, no, I'm not going to drink. That's insane. Da-da-da-da. You know, uh, the, the worm says, you're not alcoholic. You've gone almost 90 days without a drink. No alcoholic can pull that off. Even if they are shooting heroin, they can't pull that off. And uh, I thought, no, that's that's crazy. And then finally, it said, well, God, even an alcoholic deserves one drink at Christmas time. I said, yeah. So that that was the beginning of the end. And and um, and I shopped around for treatment centers. Did not want to be seen going into one in my hometown of Santa Fe. Um, you know, I had urinated in the main street at, at at midday one time in front of God and everybody, but I didn't want anyone to know I was going into a a rehab hospital. It's just uh, humiliating. So, um, so I shopped around. I found a place that said we'll get you off all this junk and you know with no pain. I'd gotten physically addicted to alcohol, which you don't have to do to be alcoholic. And in fact, you can be physically addicted and not be alcoholic. Our book talks about it. The hard drinker sometimes they have trouble coming off, but given a sufficient reason, they can quit or moderate. Okay, I was physically addicted. And I was a real alcoholic, okay. And uh, but the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. So uh, they detoxed me, and um, you know I'm down there, and and several things happened in that hospital. I um, I couldn't really sleep. Um, you know they gave me just enough phenobarbital and things like that to come off the stuff without having a seizure, but I couldn't sleep. 
And uh, one night, I, I, when I was awake all night long, I took a good, honest look at my life. And I was 38 years old. I had four children. Um, this was uh, June, actually this week of 1986. Uh, this last Tuesday was my birthday. I turned 18. And um, thank you. I, I threw that out deliberately to impress you. It's true. Yeah. Not, not with me, but, but with the power of, of the steps and God and the fact that you, you can be continuously sober and you don't have to relapse. Because I don't believe that's a necessary part of what we do. I really don't. So, uh, I'm, in, I'm in this joint and I'm, I'm up all night and I'm thinking about my life and I've got four children but I'm not a father. I've got a wife who I just lie to constantly. Um, you know, I've, I've got a business, but I'm running a business with a guy. He's my best friend, and I'm stealing from him every day. We've got a joint checkbook. Never do that with a heroin addict, by the way. If you ever get hooked up with a junkie, don't give them, you know. Um, that was a bad mistake. And uh, my, my liver had failed. I mean, it was over for me. It was really over at 38, and uh, it, I was ready to pack it in. And uh, what, I, what I got, what I really saw was that everyone that I knew and cared about would be better off if I was gone and, and wasn't there. And that's when you're useless. And that's the end of the line, you know, when there's no reason for you to be there at all. And uh, I just wept bitter tears all night. And uh, out of that uh, came uh, just a fantastic experience. Uh, one day in that treatment center, I, I realized that... Um, I, you know, at the time, I didn't know the numbers today. I think it's over a thousand times I'd driven in complete blackouts, and I'd never killed anybody or hurt my children, you know, when I'd carry them around the back of a pickup truck. And uh, it just occurred to me that the, that the percentages for that to happen were just against all odds that that could, could come off. And I became convinced that there was something that cared about me that had been taking care of me, like a spirit or an angel or you call it whatever you want. You know, I call it God today. Um, I don't know how that happened, but something took care of me. You know, when I couldn't drive a, a vehicle, something was driving for me. And uh, I've believed that all these years. I, I'll believe it, I hope, till I die. And um, anyway, couldn't sleep. I'm up in the mornings, and um, here um, I'm looking out over... Uh, uh, I go down the cafeteria. It's June in Albuquerque. You know, sun's coming up early in the morning, and I look out over this patio, and there's these uh, six or eight people out on the patio drinking coffee in the in the early morning. And I asked one of the, the other inmates there, I said, um, you know, what is that? And he says, oh, it's some extra, some AA deal or some deal. You don't have to do it. Don't worry about it. It's just, you know, um, just don't worry about it. He said, oh, but they do serve real coffee with caffeine in it out there, you know. And in this hospital, they didn't. So I thought, well, I'd like some of that, I think. You know, I'd like some caffeine. Um, so, so I went to AA for the coffee. That's the long and short of it. Isn't that crazy? Uh, for, for, I'm the only person I've ever heard say that. And uh, I went out there, and you could drink as much as you wanted. And I would drink four or five cups. And um, and it seemed that they had changed AA uh, since I'd last been there. They were saying totally different things. Um, <laughs> First of all, uh, the, the guys that I was listening to were these guys. We, I call them Chicanos. You know, you might call them Mexican-American, whatever, but the Chicano is what I've always called them. And they were the guys I ran around with. And so I was listening to them because they were like me. They were my age. And uh, all I'd remembered from the meetings in Santa Fe were these old white guys, you know, carrying on about trips to Europe and stuff. And I just thought, you know, now I'm a white guy who's been to Europe, but I can't relate, right? I, just, I never did get that one straight. So, um, at any rate, they're, they're just saying these wild things and, and telling these stories that I, you know, they were similar to my stories, but they were the things I was most ashamed of. And they were saying them outright, and then they would go, ah, ha, 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 and they'd laugh about them. And I'd think, that's not funny. You know, that's just, that's, don't tell that. You know, it's like, and uh, but they they just really hooked me. I just they, there was something about them. They were having a good time, and they and they would talk to me. You know, um, these guys are, are still sober. We were talking about them, I think, last night. That the guys that got me are still sober. And Ruben R, one of the guys, he he uh, was a big heavy set guy, and 
uh, he's, he, he talked like this, and he says, uh, you know, I worked at the VA hospital as an orderly here in Albuquerque, and I was very depressed. And so I drank a pint of vodka and washed down a hundred librium with it and then jumped out of a four-story window to the ground below. And all that happened was I crapped in my pants. I thought that was the most profound thing I had ever heard in my life. I love that. I love these guys. They were, you know... I just thought it was terrific, and uh, and this one this one guy James T. and he would say to all of the, all of us all the you know few that would come out uh, the patients he would say uh, things like you know uh, I used to hate myself I used to loathe myself and he said today I look in the mirror and I like the guy looking back at me and some days I love that guy. And I thought, man, I can't make I can't make eye contact in the mirror. I can't do it. And if I could get that, what a deal! What a deal! And he was just like I was, you know. What a deal! And he said things like, um, "You need to find a higher power that you can do business with." And I never heard that. See, I was, I was raised in the Methodist Church, and it's like you got to do the right thing, and they don't always tell you what it is. You got to guess a lot of the times, you know. <laughs> And uh, but I know what taking care of business on the streets is like, you know, and that's what he was saying. Find a higher power that you can do business with that's going to be there when you need that higher power to be there and can take care of stuff. And uh, I wasn't taking care of any kind of business at all. Um, so I, I, you know, I understood that. And uh, they said they prayed every day. So I started praying. I hadn't prayed in years, except, you know, I'd shoot some drug and think I was going to die, and then I'd beg God to save me, but that was the only prayer I ever said. And uh, I started asking God to keep me sober in the morning. I thanked Him every night. You know, I said, thank you for my sobriety, the most precious gift I've ever been given. And uh, and that served me well. You know, it served me for a long time. I, uh, at five years sober, I stopped saying that prayer. Um, through a series of things that happened because I realized that I thought I had to do that um, to stay sober, that I was earning this gift. And I found at five years that it, it, you don't earn it. It's freely given and undeserved completely. It's just an act of mercy on the part of God. And uh, so I stopped saying that prayer like that. And I just try to show God that I'm grateful, you know, rather than saying that every night to try to earn it. I uh, don't know if that makes sense. Um I've got a little more time. I, um, man, what a road it was. We, we've, uh, we work with couples, Juanita and I do uh, quite a bit. We, uh, we do these combination, they're not sanctioned by any area or any district or anything, but these combination, uh, AA and Al-Anon, uh, workshops that we do, step workshops. We bring A's and Al-Anons together, and for like 30 weeks we'll, we'll go through the steps with them. And uh, and what we try to do is we try to, um, you know, the AAs that will do that are usually ones that are involved in the steps. And the reason is, you know, they don't, they're not carrying that weight, that guilt and that shame, you know, about what they did to their family members, you know. Go to an AA conference and go to the Al-Anon talk and see the, how many AAs show up for it, you know. And the reason that they don't, I believe, is because they haven't cleaned up that stuff and they just can't stand it. It just hurts them too much to see what they've done. Conversely, you know, uh, the Alanons that didn't show up to this talk, you know, they think I was doing it at them personally, you know, and I wasn't, you know. And so that's that's what we try to do is uh, is show the the uh, the family members that the alcoholic was not doing it at you. They have a disease. It's described by a doctor. If they could have done any better, they would have done better. You know, don't take it personal if you can possibly not do that. And uh, to the Alkies, we we want them to see, you know, how it affected their family members. And the healing that takes place is just sometimes tremendous. And uh, so we've been working, now I've forgotten entirely what the point of that was, but we've been working with some people one-on-one and... Um, uh, and I just that completely just went away, so I guess I I didn't have to tell you that. Um, when uh, when I first oh I know what it what it was was how crazy our first three years were, and uh, and they just were they were just nuts. Uh, you know it took me a good two and a half to three years to detox. Um, before that, I was insane. My emotions were all over the place. I was always going to kill myself. I was always suicidal. I was always 
this, that, and the other thing. And, and had, a, had a psychiatrist gotten a hold of me, they'd have medicated me to the eyeballs, I guarantee you, because I was a, just a, a nutcase. Had not worked the steps. And uh, at two years sober, I was uh, given a chance to work in a treatment center, so I became a treatment center counselor at two years sober with no recovery whatsoever. And um, hopefully I didn't counsel any of your kin folks, but if I did, I, I apologize for it. But uh, at any rate, uh, I made it just by the skin of my teeth and a lot of prayer. I made it through that ordeal for two years. This is no sponsor going to meetings sporadically. So when you're, when you're a counselor like that, you know everything there is to know. So why would you go to meetings? What, I mean, what do you, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're God in that arena. And um, so, but we made it through that. We made it through some other stuff. And uh, at five years sober, uh, five and a half years sober, my youngest child of my, my four children uh, tried to take her own life, and uh, she'd been seven when I got sober. And we, she was 13 when this happened, and we thought she'd gotten all the recovery. And uh, it actually turned out to be a really good thing, but it really rocked our world and uh, kind of set me up for for what happened. She went into a um, to a rehab hospital herself, and uh, not for drugs and alcohol. And it gave us an arena for all of our children and for Juanita and myself to come together. And uh, we made some amends in there, and we learned some things uh, that we hadn't known, you know. Um, they asked our daughter if, if she thought her parents loved her, and she she had to wait a minute. She said, yeah, now I do, now that they're showing up here, you know. And we realized that we were doing a lot in AA and Al-Anon, but we weren't, we weren't you know, being parents to our own child. And uh, somebody said at the meeting this morning, if, you're, if your program doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And that's that's the God's honest truth, you know. Um, page 19 in our big book, it says that, that we think that sobriety is but a beginning. You know, a much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. And that's where the rubber meets the road, you know. That's the real test. So um, anyway, we got through that, and uh, you know what I realized out of that was I, I had never worked the steps. I'd never taken the medicine that AA offered, and uh, through that, uh, getting that desperate again in sobriety, I met a guy who said, "If you'll do the simple things that are outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, just as they're outlined there, and just dummy up and just you know take direction from someone else, you'll have an amazing experience, and I guarantee it." You'll recover from alcoholism. I guarantee it. And I needed to, and so I did what he said. And I've had a lot of people help me. We've had uh, really great sponsors. We've got two really tremendous sponsors. Um, through that experience, we, we ended up uh, connected to a... Uh, I've talked to some people this weekend about it. Uh, actually, Dick's wife uh, spoke there, uh, Peggy, a couple years ago. Um, connected to this Fellowship of the Spirit conference in Colorado where people come from all over America, A's and Al-Anons, and they come together and, and they do this, they celebrate the, the steps and, uh, and the big book of AA uh, together through workshops and speakers and, and things. And that's just been a tremendous uh, help to us, you know, um, over the years. Uh, it's the last full weekend in July, or the last weekend in July, and we, we do it every year. We would never miss it. That's our mother conference, and uh, that's been really helpful. That's how I met my sponsor. Um, anyway, um, we, we're very active. I mean, you can kind of tell that. We, uh, we live and breathe AA. We also try to balance that with uh, AA and Alman. We try to balance that with, with our family life. You know, when when the 12 steps says practice these principles in all our affairs, I believe that if I'm not doing the stuff with my family and, uh, you know, not taking care of my business and things like that, I'm not practicing the 12 step because I'm not practicing these principles in all my affairs. So uh, there's a lot more to that 12 step than the, than the stuff that we do with sponsees and such. But... Um, you know, Juanita's been involved in service from the very beginning. I have two general service as well as one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, you know, we stay really active in all that. And uh, it's just paid tremendous dividends, you know. Our kids, um, we have the respect and the love of all of our children. We have the adoration of seven grandchildren, which is just a miracle. Um, you know, I never deserved that. I never, I never deserved for any of them to ever talk to me again. I mean, really. You know, at all. And uh, they trust us with their kids. 
You know, they trust us. All of them trust us. All four of them. I don't. I don't know how close I'll ever be with my children. You know, I try to be, and I, I try to be open. And um, we have a we have a wonderful home today. You know, that that is a place where they can come, and they do come. You know, sometimes unfortunately, but they. <laughs> You know, we've got our daughter living with us right now and, and her boyfriend, and that's different. Um, but uh, but it's a safe place. You know, it's a safe haven for them instead of this just horror show that we lived in before. And um, and so that's that's been a really good thing. That's been a really great healing for us. And uh, just wonderful things have happened. This, um, i got a little more time. This last year... Um, not this last year, this year, 04, uh, has been easily the toughest of my entire sobriety, and I've had some really tough years. Um, in January, my mother died, and uh, I was there, and Juanita was there when she died, and we were with her, and uh, we did uh, we did the stand-up thing, you know, with, with her, and, and uh, really helped her out. We're a comfort to her, you know. Um, my mother was a t- extremely troubled lady, troubled individual. Um, she could be uh, vicious, just absolutely. She could be. She was mean as a snake sometimes, you know. And uh, she had that in her. And uh, you know, when when she died, I heard someone else say this, and and I just thought it. You know, I didn't I didn't particularly bury a lovable one, but I buried a loved one, and I couldn't have loved her. Anymore, if she'd been Mother Teresa, I couldn't have loved her any more than I did, and that was directly from this program. You know, she stopped drinking a couple of weeks before she died. Uh, she just got bored with it. I mean, it was just an oddity, you know. And uh, she was 80 years old, and anyway, uh, she suffered a lot in her last years. But um, she knew that her oldest son was okay, that he was safe, and that he loved her tremendously. You know, and her younger son. And, uh, you know, my brother has said to me, you know, that tremendous things have happened because you got sober in AA for all of us, you know, not just you. And, um, you know, I was very grateful for that. We, we, When my mom died, it was Juanita's idea, we prayed with her body for about 45 minutes, tried to get her soul going in the right direction. I think we did that. And... Uh, and anyway, I'll I'll be forever grateful to you all for that, you know, because that was a gift from you <clears throat> that I was able to do that. When my when my father died 30 years ago, uh, I nearly punched out his brother, his only sibling, you know, at the funeral because we got into a fight like alcoholic families love to do at funerals. And uh, so it really looked different this time, you know, I was there to help people and um, and comfort them. But we started out like that, and uh, that was January, and in February we were going up to a board meeting uh, up in Colorado where we're on the board of this conference, and uh, Rhoda, I have traveled, I don't know how many times, snowbound. Uh, we hit a patch of ice right near uh, Colorado Springs, went off the road, hit a phone pole, nearly killed ourselves two weeks after my mo- we buried my mom in Kentucky. And uh, it's just like the stuff was just coming out of nowhere, you know. And uh, one of our sponsors, Mary Thayer, said, you know, you, you weren't even be- begun to grieve yet, you know, and you were making that trip. And that may have been true, I don't know, but I think we were we were taken care of because it was just seconds and inches or we wouldn't be here now, you know. We'd, we'd be dead. And um, a lot of drama in this deal. We, um, you know, we went on uh, in May. Our, our youngest daughter, the one who tried to kill herself, uh, she graduated uh and did a really good job in college, uh, but she graduated from college. So this is the kid that almost flunked sandbox, you know. I mean, she just, I mean, what, what a difference, what, what a deal. And, uh, you know, she's a really decent, fine young lady. And uh, her boyfriend graduated too, and they've come back to New Mexico and are looking for jobs. And while they are, they're living with us. And uh, it's it's great to be able to do that. It's stressful, you know. It's um, as you can imagine, if you've done it, uh, it creates stress. And uh, but it's okay, you know. It's like we just keep praying and, and <laughs> trying to do the right thing. We talk to our sponsors, and um, you know, and that's what we do. We um, w- about three weeks ago. Um, 
I had the, the worst week I've ever had sober, I guess. And uh, this is a couple months after all this other stuff happened. We um, It was a Monday afternoon and Juanita called and she'd been stopped for a routine speeding ticket out where we live. Is this okay? Go for it. <laughs> I, just a little background on my wife. She, she, she was the New Mexico area delegate. And uh, and when she was, she uh, she was one of the speakers when Alan and I had their 50th uh, anniversary down in Virginia Beach. She is, uh, I would say, respected and revered by A's and Alan and all over America. I mean, just I think that's a a really true statement. I'm extremely proud of her. And uh, and she was the uh, she worked for the state of New Mexico and she brought in licensure for the counselor and she started the counselor and therapy board in our state. Before that, there was no anybody could be a therapist. Anybody called themselves one. She did a terrific job at that. And people know her in that capacity who don't even know she's in Al-Anon and uh, respect her for that. And um, Anyway, so that's kind of the, and she sponsors 15 women and, you know, blah, 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 speaks all over the country. So, uh, so she was, uh, she said, I don't know why they're taking so long. She called me, you know, and, and uh, she said, but something's gone haywire. Well, I got one of those gut deals, those intuitive things, you know, because I'm an old criminal. And I thought, something's up here. Uh, long story short, she, they handcuffed her, arrested her for a uh, bench warrant on something she had already paid, but the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Uh, so she had taken care of this in October, but the, the courts didn't know about it. They put her in the jail that she had been bringing an Al-Anon meeting for the last year into this jail. Now she's an inmate there. And we got the Alki is bailing out the Al-Anon instead of the other way around. Well, that was stressful. And uh, <laughs> next day, it was Tuesday. It was a little mellower, except I'm worried about a thing that could possibly be diagnosed as cancer. I don't know. So I'm a little edgy about that. Wednesday, I take the, the boyfriend, the, the, the um, daughter's boyfriend. Um, my sponsor told me a long time ago, he said, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that, you know, that we play. As a family, we play. That's what we do. And so let each family play as their circumstances warrant. It's in the family afterwards. You can read it. And he said, if I sponsor you, you will play. Because you're going to get brittle if you don't. And you're not a player, so you can make yourself play. So I decided this is play day, right? <laughs> the Wednesday after all this. And uh, I take this kid who's from Kentucky, he's never lived in New Mexico, and I take him to the Rio Grande, which is our only river we have, and I get him in a canoe, he's never been in a canoe in his life, and I try to go down the river with him. Long story short, he capsizes the canoe, uh, we both get hypothermic, uh, I get stuck and have to climb a mountain to get out of this, this gorge that I'm in, literally climb a mountain that, that can't be climbed in sandals, which is what I'm doing. And uh, and my glasses are in the river. So uh, now I'm I'm 56 years old. I'm if you see me walk, I'm basically a cripple, and I have hepatitis C. And I'm climbing this mountain. It takes like three hours, and search and rescue finally got me on the other side. But you know we got out of it. And uh, but you know had had I slipped off that mountain, it was an 800 foot fall uh, to either side. And uh, I I said, God, if this is where it ends, I'm willing. You know, I mean, I'm, I get tired sometimes, and I'm willing to go. This is—it's your call, God. And uh, and I just prayed my butt off, as you can imagine. And uh, anyway, made it through that ordeal, and we're going out to Indianapolis, to uh, Minneapolis, to to speak at a deal on Friday, and we're kind of excited about that. And I, I um, the next day on Thursday, I go to get a massage, and uh, come out and go to my locker, and they've stolen my wallet, and everything I had in it is gone, including my uh, driver's license that I'm going to get on the airplane with the next day. I mean, it's just like, what's what's the deal, God? What's the lesson here? So we go to Minneapolis, and we have a, a good time out there and come back, and it's Memorial Day, and I call my sponsor, 
to kind of debrief about all this stuff. And uh, I called him and I said, uh, you know, this is what happened. And, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, I did, what have I done? Is my karma catching up with me? And he assured me that, you know, it was nothing like that, that, that no one is out to get me. It was just sometimes the chips fall this way. And that's what had been happening. And he told me some things to do. And he talked to me for quite a while. And, uh, and then uh, right after that, he said, you know, because you're part of my family, I have to tell you that I have cancer. And uh, Jesus, you know, it's just like, God, I can't take anymore. You know, I cannot take anymore. Um, this guy's the finest man I've ever known in my entire life. And I just, I, you know, we're at the limit here. And um, anyway, a lot of prayer, a lot of stuff. Turns out that his prognosis is pretty good, and uh, that we're a lot of us are praying for him all all over the country. And uh, but it was just, you know, it's just like man, you know, talk about hitting bottom again. And uh, so, and then we're looking forward to coming out here and telling you all this, you know. <laughs> when Mary Thayer was my sponsor, she told me she said, uh, "You have one job, and that's to tell the truth." You know, um, Don told me your, mess- your your job is to carry a message of hope to hopeless people. That's what we do. And so what I can tell you is I never thought of drinking during any of that stuff. I never lost my faith in God. Um, I never stopped praying and I never stopped working with other people. And I think that's what really saved me was that I never stopped working with the guys that I work with or going to the pen or doing the things that, that we do. Um that's that's what it looks like today. That's exactly what it looks like. We have a rich, full life that's beyond anything that we could have dreamed up for ourselves. We've been blessed when we didn't deserve the blessing. You know, we've been given mercy when we didn't show mercy. And uh, I just, I'm as grateful as I can possibly be, you know. Um, Arbutus O'Neill always says this, you know, and she says, um, that we carry a message, that you guys carry a message that the entire world needs to hear. AA and Al-Anon. That's true. And if you'll keep carrying it, I promise you that I will. And I love you very much. Thank you.